So with that, let's go ahead and turn to the book of Haggai. We've been in a series that we've entitled Considering uh, Our Ways and uh, really asking the question, am I about God's business or am I about my own? And we've used the illustration of two doors, and we'll talk about those uh, a couple different times here. And the, and the question is, is, as we make decisions in life, as we pursue uh, the different moments in our life, are we going through the door of my ways or through the ways of God and going through uh, His doorway, signifying are we choosing to follow Him and His ways. And over these past weeks, we've seen the prophet Haggai uh, teach us about a book that many of us really had no idea uh, about what it was all involving. And the book of Haggai has taught us about our priorities, about our perspectives, about our uh, purity as a uh, people uh, who want to follow and trust Christ with uh, everything. And today we're going to see a word of promise. And as we've learned uh, over and over again now, uh, these words are, are different words. We start out in week one, a word of exhortation, kind of a biting indictment that the people's priorities were all out of whack. And then God comes back to his prophet uh, Haggai, and what he does is he encourages. So we go from exhortation to encouragement in message two. And then in the third message that Haggai shares, it's exhortation again. It's, it's in some ways kind of knocking uh, the... Uh, people against the wall and calling them to be a people of purity. And so exhortation, encouragement, then exhortation, and then we've got encouragement uh, today. And a word that I hope will encourage you greatly. The people of God are somewhat discouraged, and God is going to share a message in this final message uh, to one particular person, a man by the name of Zerubbabel. Now, I told the first service, and nobody took me up on it. Any of you ladies who are Pregnant right now with a male child, Zerubbabel. It's a great name. We don't have it in the directories yet, and so we're really looking forward to one of you having uh, our first Zerubbabel. Now, we don't know uh, much about him. We know a couple things from the genealogies. We know that he was a man of royal descent. Now, many of you would say, well, that's the life. Zerubbabel's got it. But what we're going to learn is, is that Zerubbabel's grandfather would be one who would uh, be cursed by God because of his disobedience, because of his faithlessness. And so here Zerubbabel is the governor of Israel, but a governor during a very small time. He's not the king of Israel because there's no kingdom. There's just a group of 50,000 people who need a leader, and Zerubbabel's the leader of that 50,000 people that would come out of the Babylonian captivity with the task of building, rebuilding the temple and beginning to rebuild the life of the nation of Israel. And so that's where we find ourselves, Haggai giving the fourth message. We're going to close out the series this week and then we'll start a new series that we've entitled Rhythm, trying to find uh, God's rhythm in our lives and many of the different things. We'll do that for the rest of uh, the summer series and that'll start next week and we look forward to that. But let's go ahead and stand as we give some reverence to God's Word as we read uh, Haggai chapter 2. Verses 20 through 23. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can find uh, uh, our passage in the Pew Bibles in front of you on page 792. Page 792. Here's what the Word of the Lord says. The Word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai in the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I'm going to make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father God, we ask for the blessing on the reading of your word, the hearing of your word, and now, Lord, we ask for a blessing on the teaching of your word. Lord, allow us to stand on your promises, your good and true promises. Remind us, Lord, that you do, in fact, win and that you are the great victor. Let us live our lives in light of that victory so that we may produce in our faithfulness, glory and honor that will be shared with you. Lord, that you will be given that praise that is due your name and that we may honor you in that. So, Lord, I pray you'd speak through me in a powerful way. In Christ's name we pray. 
Amen and amen. You may be seated. You're going to read in the devotional of our study guide this week a story about a correction that takes place in a local Oregon newspaper. It was advertising uh, the choir concert from the First Christian Church. And in bold letters, in the middle of the front page, was the announcement of this great cantata that the church choir was going to sing. And with bold letters, it said, Our God Resigns. It was supposed to say, Our God Reigns. Resigns, reigns. It's amazing what one letter can do to a word. But I wonder how many of you were wondering if our God has resigned this last week. Because it's easy for us to get uh, the perspective, to fall prey to a perspective when we see the events like that which has transpired in this last week. To wonder if evil has finally won. If sin has carried the day. And because of that, if God has not truly just washed his hands of this planet and this race, it sure does seem like the Christian has seen his best days behind him, that sin truly is winning the battle. It seems odd that our nation is celebrating sin and debauchery with great flamboyance and great excitement all the while despising holiness at every corner. I'd be lying to you if I didn't tell you my heart absolutely sank this week at the decision of our Supreme Court. God, it sure does look as I was thinking like the enemy's advancing. God, I just don't know. You said your church was going to prevail against the gates of hell. You said we were going to win, but Lord, it sure does seem like you're not winning at all. It sure seems like sin is going to have its way. And then I open the Bible, and I'm told a different story. And in our text today, while it seems like the world and its sin has seized the day, I want you to know something, brothers and sisters. I've got a word of encouragement for anybody who's downtrodden, who everybody, who, anyone who's wavering or wondering in light of what our country and, and, and our fellow citizens are doing in their pursuit of sin, wondering if God has a message, if God has a word for us, and God, in fact, does. While everybody is waving their flag, God's got a flag to wave. And his flag symbolizes one thing, and he tells the world, and the church needs to hear it loud and clear this morning. The word of the Lord says, I win. I win. You know, as a Cub fan, when the Cubs win, we wave a flag. I don't want it to be a point of contention. I know we have fun with our rival groups, but I'm going to wave a flag this morning, not for my baseball team, because Lord knows none of the baseball teams in Chicago have anything to wave a flag about. Yeah, that's a good amen. But this is the flag that God wants to remind us about this morning. He's saying, I win. And I'm going to hang this, not because I'm a Cub fan. I'm going to hang this because I'm a servant of Almighty God. And God wins. And he's waving this flag this morning. And people can be waving their flag. And people can be announcing their victory. And God is saying, you just wait. You just wait. Because on a cross 2,000 years ago, on a hill called Calvary, victory was won. And so I've got some words for us this morning. Because of this victory, there's a truth that we need to be encouraged with, a truth that comes straight out of our passage. Man, I told the man, I'm discouraged this week. Boy, it's a, it's a sad day. And then I come and I read, and God's got a word for us this morning. And it's a word that comes 500 years before Christ, 2,500 years before uh, us today. A word to a singular person, a political leader, on the same day that uh, God shares a message with the priest 
to get their lives in order, to get the people's purity right. A reminder for us as Christians, God sends a word on that evening in December of 520 B.C. Zerubbabel, I've got a word for you. And just as he had a word for Zerubbabel, he's got a word for us today. And the word is, I win. And so here's what we need to understand. It's a simple truth, a simple outline that's going to make forth one sentence, but it will revolutionize the way we live in light of all that the media tells us. And here's the statement. God reigns supreme. God reigns supreme. Therefore, we must submit to him in all spheres of life. We'll go over that again. But God reigns supreme. Therefore, we must submit to, all, to him in all spheres of life. Of life. So let's break this down this morning. In light of this victory, we recognize once again God reigns supreme. While the days of Israel and Haggai's day were at a low point, while the days of, of spirituality and holiness, it seems, in America is at its low point, God has a word of encouragement for his people. And what we need to hear is what they needed to hear. They were a people who found themselves defenseless, lacking power and might of what they had years ago. Their recent history was one of bondage and captivity. God was yet going to announce to Zerubbabel in this passage, I am still on my throne. I am in control. And I have no doubt in my mind that the people in Haggai's day looked at their circumstances and looked at their uh, uh, world around them and thought the glory days for God's people were over. I know that there are some of you that are feeling that way today. But let me remind you that in spite of all the events of the headlines that have filled our papers and newscasts, this simple truth. God has not left his throne. And God today, just as he did yesterday, and the millions of yesterdays that came before it, God still reigns supreme. Just as with every day, God ushered this new day in, being worshipped by the angels and all of creation as the King of kings and of the Lord of lords. And while the fools in this world say in their heart there is no God, creation and all of the universe declares in one voice, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You see, before God is through with Haggai, he wants to share a last message of an incredible truth that God is, he has been, and continues to be, and will always rule from his throne in heaven. How do we know that to be true? Let's notice the text that the first of all, we see that God reigns supreme, and that is clearly seen in what I'd like to call his prerogative. His prerogative. That is, he can do whatever he wants. This prerogative is seen, notice in the text, of all of the words or letters, if you will, the word I. Notice, I believe, six times he's going to say, I am going to do this, and I am going to do that, and, and I'm going to address this nation, and I'm going to address this army, and I'm going to address this person. It doesn't say, I need to get permission to do this. He doesn't say, if so-and-so says it's okay, then I'm going to do this. Or if circumstances lend themselves to this, then I'll do that. He says, I will do dot, dot, dot. That's a prerogative. One of the great things of being an adult is you get a prerogative. Kids who are in here, you have no prerogative. Okay? I hated that as a kid. I wanted to go do something. I couldn't do it. Who did I have to go talk to? Mom and dad. And the answer was usually no. But as an adult, I get to do what I want. But here's the thing. As much as we have a prerogative, we still have constraints. I will go to Fiji. My bank account says, no, you won't. My job says, no, you can't. 
I want to do this, I want to do that, but circumstances have to lend themselves to it. So we may have a human prerogative, but God has a celestial divine prerogative to do whatever he wants, and it comes to pass. He doesn't have to check his calendar. He doesn't have to check with his supervisor or boss. He doesn't have to check with his wife or, or, or check the school schedule. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. He will do it, and he will do it to his good pleasure. The prerogatives of God. Now notice, he says, I'm going to shake the heavens and earth. That's no small thing. I'm going to overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. I'm going to overthrow armies. I'm going to take you, Zerubbabel, and I'm going to use you. I'm going to make you a signet ring because I have chosen you. Oh, brothers and sisters, on a day or a week where our hearts are discouraged, let this statement soak into our hearts. We serve a God, as I've said, who does whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants to do it. He's accountable to no one, and he does as he pleases in all ways, in all things. So we read the headlines, we think that the world is coming apart at the seams, and think it's out of control, and yet nothing, listen to me, nothing in this world, not a single molecule can go maverick on God. No tree can say, well, I'm going to lean this way without God saying, okay. No animal can say, well, I want to do this without God's express written consent, and that involves human beings as well. Steve Cole, a pastor, says the following, God is not some hysterical carriage driver trying to grab a hold of out-of-control reins of a team of horses that's running to destruction. Let me say that again. God is not some hysterical carriage driver trying to grab a hold of the reins of a team of horses. Whoa, whoa, things are out of control. I gotta grab them, I gotta bring them back in, I gotta rein them in. God is not sitting there, nor did God this week go, holy cow, Supreme Court, what did you just do? You blew it! Wow, I didn't see that coming. Whoa, that messes everything up for us. God says, I win. And there's a day coming where we'll get this whole thing right. God is in control. Now you say, Tim, okay, I believe that, but let's, let's in, reinforce this. We're a Bible church, so let's go to the Bible and make sure the Bible says what Tim is saying is true. Isaiah 14, 24. You can just write this passage down. You can verify it afterwards for the sake of time. But this is what Isaiah 14, 24 says. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so it shall be. And as I have purposed, so it shall be stand. Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 11. Isaiah 46, 8 through 11 says the following. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to your mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I declare the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all of my purposes, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, declares the Lord, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it, and therefore I will do it. God reigns supreme. Now notice, he's not just a God of talk. Notice the power. The things he's going to say that he reigns over are pretty big. They're not small things. He's going to rule over nations. He's going to destroy kingdoms. He's going to lay down and overthrow kings on their thrones. He is on that great and glorious day going to rise up and be the one who will rule for all eternity. Now some will say, well, these are open threats. It is easy to say how powerful you are. And then when the going gets tough or you find yourself in those circumstances that you're just a scaredy cat. The classical uh, movie and, and story of the Wizard of Oz is a reminder of that. Everybody is in awe of the great Oz. 
But what we find out at the end of the story is the great Oz isn't all that great, is he? He's just a little man behind the curtain. Brothers and sisters, let us never think that God is this little man behind the curtain. God is the great God, the only true, all-powerful, and almighty God who reigns supreme on his throne. And so what God says is, I'm powerful, and if you wonder if I'm really telling the truth, then just look at my resume. When I was a little boy, I used to collect baseball cards. And on one side of the baseball card was the picture of the player. You got to see him up close and personal. There he was. And on the back side of the card was all of his achievements, all of his stats, how, how, how his batting average was, uh, what his on-base percentage was, the home runs and the RBIs and, and all of that, all of his accolades. This is what I've done as a player. Brothers and sisters, the Old Testament is God's baseball card to us. You want to know how powerful I am? Just go through the stories of the Old Testament. You see, God showed his power. He didn't just talk about power. Paul tells us the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And so God shows Abram power when he destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. God shows power to a stuttering prophet named Moses who he has to pull out of the uh, hillbilly country of Midian to go and proclaim with a stutter, let my people go, and he does so without an army and without anybody else but his brother. And the great Pharaoh of Egypt, with all of his armies, with all of his power, in a matter of 10 days when plagues befall the land, Pharaoh lets him go. Joseph would see God's power when his brothers would conspire against him, even though he was God's chosen man for the hour, God, or Joseph's brothers did not see that to be the case. Joseph and his brothers would see the power of God and the plans of God cannot be thwarted when they bowed down in Egypt to their brother, just as Joseph had been told. How about Joshua, a young leader who followed up in the footsteps of a great Moses, and the first thing that Joshua sees as he takes the reins from his uh, predecessor Moses is the, span, the, the, the um, pushing back of the Jordan River at flood stage. And then he would see his power over and over again at every one of the battles in the land of Canaan. Victory after victory after victory. David would stand before a Goliath, a giant, and with no armor, a sling, and five smooth stones, David would see the power of God at work in him when he slayed that great giant. Hezekiah the king would go to bed full of fear and trepidation because a couple hundred thousand Assyrians had surrounded Jerusalem. Hezekiah would learn the power of God when one angel that night would slay 185,000 of them. You see... God doesn't just speak about his power, he lives it. And one of the reasons why we are so discouraged this morning is because we have put so much focus and attention on the world, thinking that our best days are over. God is announcing to us today that he's just warming up. He's just warming up. And that the best days are yet to come and we need to as a people be praying for that God showcase that power once again let our prayers be like that of Jeremiah who said oh Lord behold you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm for nothing is too difficult for you to do God is a God of great power his power is seen also in what I call his predetermination you see, we are willing, and many of us will take solace in the fact that, that God has control over the world. And that's good, and that's right, because nothing happens in this world without God giving a level of approval in the sense of that it can be done, it can come to pass, and that God will see it all through in the end. But when it's brought to the lowest level, and what I mean by that is, is we say, yes, God is in control. He's sovereign over the world. But what about me? 
And what will quickly come out of our mouths is that, well, yes, God is sovereign over the world, but, but I have free will. Brothers and sisters, I want you to understand something very biblical this morning. You cannot speak of God's sovereignty over human history and not believe God isn't sovereign over humans. Let me say that again. If you don't believe God is sovereign over you and the decisions you make and, and the pursuit of him in your life, then you will never be able to say God is sovereign over human history. God is sovereign over the king and he's sovereign over Tim. I can't do a single thing without God saying, let it be done. And so we need to recognize what we see take place as God says, I need a man. I'm going to use a man. And I'm going to use a man of my own choosing, and his name is Zerubbabel. Now, nowhere in the text, nowhere in the text does it tell us that Zerubbabel had done anything of merit to be chosen. It doesn't say, well, Zerubbabel, you were this kind of man, you did these wonderful things, or anything like that. It doesn't speak of that at all. In fact, John Calvin was right in his commentary when he said this, nowhere in the text does God ascribe any merit or excellencies to Zerubbabel other than that Zerubbabel was chosen simply because God saw fit to do so. Now, you would say, Tim, but the Bible speaks of responsibility, and yes, Yes, we are responsible for our actions before God and before others, but brothers and sisters, never let us negate God's sovereignty over the affairs of life and in our salvation because you and I have a level of responsibility. What it is is that Zerubbabel was chosen by God for a task. And the reason why Zerubbabel cooperated with that was because God willed him to do so. There's no other way around this text. You cannot draw any other conclusion out of that. And so here's the truth that we need to understand. Go back to the two doors. You see, some of us have this idea that we can throw, thwart the will and ways of God. So what I'll do is I'll go my own way. I just remind you of the story of Jonah. God, I want you to, or Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is to the east. Jonah goes down to Joppa, and he picks up a, a, a ship that's heading to Tarshish to the west. God says, uh-uh, you went through your door of your way, well, I'll take care of it. God brings a storm, and the guys in the ship try to figure out the storm, and they're like, wait a minute, what's going on here? And Jonah says, ah, the storm's about me. I was supposed to go through God's door, and I went through mine, and God's just moving me back to his door. So throw me over the ship, and what happens? God's got the SSS or SS whale waiting for him and drops him right off on the shores for him to make his trek to Nineveh. Let me tell you this. One commentary says it this way. He says the following. Behind every one of our temporal choices, whether righteous or evil, that man makes is the sovereign, eternal choice of God. So what that means is, some of you, you know, when I was a teenager, there was a time of rebellion in my life where I told my parents, I'll show them. I'm going to make their lives miserable. I'm going to make them have to change some things, have to do some things. And, and some of you teenagers are thinking that's going to happen right now. Here's the problem. You may be able to do that to mom and dad. You can't do that with God. You go, you choose your sinful way. God says, don't worry about it. We'll just do a little course correction and we'll bring you back where I want you. And so every time you go through your way, you may be thinking you're going through your way and God just says, hey, my door is a whole lot bigger than your door is. And so you need to recognize this morning that the doctrine of God's sovereignty should challenge our hearts. It should remove all pride. And it does not need to be a doctrine of confusion but Scripture over and over again reminds us that the choosing of us is a place of encouragement and comfort, causing the believer to be cut away from any pride and a reminder that salvation is of no human effort at all that we can then announce, for it is only by grace that you and I are saved through faith. It is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works that any of us could ever boast. So this is what God is wanting to teach his people. 
I win, and I win even over human beings. So here's where I take solace. God wins over Tim, and God wins over the nine Supreme Court justices on the Supreme Court. President Obama, with all due respect, God wins. Kings and kingdoms of the world, just as God reigns supreme in Timbadal's life, God reigns supreme over you. So who cares what the newscasts say? God wins. And we can live from that victory today. Notice it involves finally one, one plan. Just so you know, all of my other points are five times longer than the first point. We'll have you out by trivia night tonight. No, let's just focus on this for a moment. The plan. I'd be remiss not to tell you that within the text, we see that Zerubbabel is what is, is called a type of Christ. Some of you who are new to Christianity are like, what in the world are you talking about? What is that, a type of Christ? What it means is, the best way to illustrate it is Zerubbabel was a sneak preview to who Jesus was going to be. All throughout the Old Testament, we see these types, these sneak previews of who the Messiah was going to be, and Zerubbabel's one of them. He's like, this is who my Jesus is going to be like. And Richard Wolff in his commentary says this, Just as Zerubbabel led Israel out of Babylonian captivity, so will Christ deliver us from the captivity of our sin. Just as Zerubbabel was building in his life the temple of God, so it is Christ who intercedes and is building the spiritual temple in each and every one of us today. Just as Zerubbabel would be the signet ring by which Christ would enter into this world, it is through Christ, God's final and most exalted signet ring, that you and I are brought into the family of God. Zerubbabel is a type of Christ, a foreshadowing, a sneak preview of what Christ was going to be like. But here's why we know this to be true. None of the things that God speaks to Zerubbabel about come to fruition in Zerubbabel's day. No armies are overturned. No nations are knocked low. We have no mention of that. In fact, uh, it, it's a pretty quiet time. It's a time of silence, really, after Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi's days. It gets pretty quiet. And we'll see some of this manifested and, and seen out in the, in the person of Jesus Christ, spiritually. But we'll see on one great and glorious day, turn in your Bibles for a moment, when will this be fulfilled? We've got to go all the way to the very end of the Bible. We've got to go to the very end of the Bible in Revelation 19. And notice the words that Zerubbabel is shared with, that God shares with Zerubbabel, are made manifest in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 20. Listen to what it says. Revelations 19, 11 through 20. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on it that no one knows but himself. He is, clothed in he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in the fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, in the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with the false prophet who its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur.
And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the throne. I'm sorry, sitting on the horse. And all the birds gorged on their flesh. Beautiful words on a beautiful Sunday morning. God once again says, I win. Checkmate. And there's a day that's coming, and it's not here yet, but soon and very soon that day will come where the armies of this world will, with their fists pointed towards God, say, bring it on, and God will say, gladly, and he will win. God wins. He reigns supreme. He reigns supreme, and we need to recognize that based on his prerogative, his power, his predetermination, and his plans. No matter what man conspires against God, no matter what the sinful world tells us, let us never forget to tell ourselves and our children that God has already won, that no matter what culture says is good and right, It does not matter because in the end, God will be the only one standing. He will be the only one who will be worshipped and adored for all of eternity. God reigns supreme, brothers and sisters, so therefore, our response is to submit to him. Is to submit to him. Because of this truth, because of, of the flag of victory that God is waving to us today, We have three responses. Number one, we must recognize that it's all about God's timing and not our own. Submitting to God is submitting to his timing. Verse 6 tells us of chapter 2 in Haggai that in a little while God is going to accomplish these things. In just a little while. Well, God, it's been 2,500 years. He also says that I'm about to dot, dot, dot. Meaning that it's just right, it's ripe to take place. But let me remind you what 2 Peter chapter 3 tells us. A reminder that amidst all kinds of scoffing, God's timing is not ours. In 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 3, knowing this first of all, that you're, uh, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But they deliberately overlook the fact that the heavens existed long ago and that the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of this, the world and that all that existed was deluged with water and perished the flood. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But notice, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with one day, with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years but one day. The Lord is not slow in fulfilling his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting and hastening the coming day of God? God's coming. His victory proves it but it will come on a day of his choosing. So with regards to his timing, what is our job? To be out announcing the victory to everyone. God is one. And God reigns supreme, and because God reigns supreme, we must submit. And submission is salvation. Where we bow the knee and say, to you alone, God, deserve all the glory and praise. To you, I give my life. And what that means is is if we're going to accomplish that task, it means that we need to rely on God alone. We need to rely on God alone. Zerubbabel couldn't do the task on his own. We can't do the task on our own. And so I'm greatly encouraged that in the book of Zechariah, chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, God gives another word of encouragement to his governor the man whom he's chosen 
to serve him. He says the following in chapter 6, The word of the Lord came to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So how do we claim the Victory Village Bible Church? We don't do it by more programs. We don't do it uh, uh, by raising all kinds of money in our own strength. We don't do so uh, trying to do it on our own. We get on our knees and we say, God, because you've claimed the victory, because you're the victorious one, we can be victorious as well. And so by your spirit, God, lead us. By your spirit, guide us. By your spirit, empower us to accomplish the great commission task that you've given to us to accomplish. Rely on him and him alone. But to do so, it means you've got to respond in obedience. If God reigns supreme, I'm going to believe you believe that now. If his timing is always right, if he alone is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in times of trouble, then we only have one choice. Serve God and him alone. Now, Zerubbabel was the head honcho in Jerusalem those days. But notice in our text, his title that God gives him is, O Zerubbabel, my servant. The only job you and I have in this world that matters is are we the servants of God? Are we serving him? Are we honoring him with all that we do? When God calls us to something, are we doing it? Here's the problem. We're busy doing things. We're just not busy doing what God wants us to. A couple weeks ago, I was out in the garage, and I had asked my three boys to come out, and I love having boys because they can help you with tasks. And I said, guys, we've got to clean the garage. I'll be back in a minute, but I want you to do this, you to do that, and you, the third one, to do another thing. And I come back, and none of it's done. And I start getting angry, to which the oldest says, but Dad, we've been busy. We've been doing stuff. I says, what have you been doing? He shows me the middle son is out sweeping the driveway. The other one's pulling weeds. I said, that's great and that's good, but that's not what I asked you to do. Obedience is not measured. Hear me out. Obedience is not measured by us doing stuff. Obedience is measured. Hear me this morning. Obedience is measured by how much we obey. And some of you right now are doing a lot of stuff, but you're not doing what God's asked of you. You're busy doing things, but you're not obeying God because you're doing what you want to do. And yeah, it may be good, noble things, but it's what you want to do. Obedience is doing what God wants to do because he's the one in control, because he reigns supreme. We should be listening to him and we should be humbly serving him. Notice in all spheres of life, in all spheres of life. You see, God is demanding obedience from us. He was demanding obedience from his people in Haggai's day, and he's demanding to be obedience to us today. Here's the problem. We, like in Haggai's day, are just given a whole lot of lip service. Oh, God, you're number one. But it doesn't show in how you use your time. It doesn't show where your money goes. It doesn't show how you're raising your family. So you put on your list God's number one and God's victorious, but, but it doesn't show. We give lip service just as Haggai's people did. And God says enough is enough. I am the one who's won the victory. I am the one who's glorious. I am the only one who matters. So it is time for the people of Village Bible Church and the people as it was in Haggai's day to rethink our priorities, to review our purity, to examine our perspective in light of the promise of God. If God wins, then what in the world are we doing with our sad lives today? This truth needs to change who we are. And because God reigns supreme, he wants all of us, not part of us. And he wants to make you like his son. He's calling you and I to a relationship, a relationship that brings the blessings of heaven, no matter your failures and your faults. Let me just close with this thought. Remember Zerubbabel? I told you we don't know much about him. We know he's from a line of royalty, but his granddaddy was a king who would lose his throne and notice, just for a moment, listen, write this passage down. It's important. You need to go back to it because it, it's huge. And this is where God's plans just come forth. So Zerubbabel's granddaddy 
is faithless. He lives his way instead of God's way. And God says, all right, I'm, I'm done with you. And notice the verbiage that he uses with his granddaddy in Jeremiah 22, verses 24 and 25. As I, declare, as I live, declares the Lord, though Conaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I will tear you off. I will give you into the hand of those who seek your life and into the hand of those whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Who would take over Israel? Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. I'll hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land to which they will long to return, they shall not return. Is this man Coniah? A despised broken pot, a vessel no one cares for. Why are he and his children hurled and cast into a land they do not know? Who is his children? Well, the second generation is Zerubbabel. And so here, what he did was God said, Okay, I'm done with you, granddaddy. You're not my signet ring anymore. But because of God's grace and mercy, God takes Zerubbabel and he puts him back on. And he says, you're my prized possession. Why? Did Zerubbabel do anything? Nope. Here's the great thing, that Zerubbabel is a type of us as well. We who are cursed because of our faithlessness, Jesus, because of his faithfulness, allows us to be a part of the family of God. How do we see that? How do we see that? Turn to your Bibles, one more passage, and we're done. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. But Tim, Matthew chapter 1 is the genealogy of Jesus. You betcha. Because that's the last time we hear of Zerubbabel. In Matthew chapter 1, in verse 12, the history and the line of Jesus is laid forth. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah, remember Coniah, the father of Shealtiel, that's the granddaddy of Zerubbabel there, we see Zerubbabel is the father of many, and what takes place? We go down, he's the father of so-and-so, the father of so-and-so, father of so-and-so, and then in verse 16, and Jacob is the father of Joseph. Joseph's the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus Christ was born, who is the Messiah. Zerubbabel was faithful, and God said, your faithfulness and my sovereign choice of your life is going to be forever blessed by being a part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. And some of you right now are living some pretty cursed lives. You're living lives of despair. You're living lives of discouragement. And you're wondering. And God is saying, if we are faithful, if our priorities are right and true, if our perspective is focused in on God's perspective, not our own, if we are pursuing God's purity in our lives, God says, you have no idea, you have no idea the place you will hold in human history as I unfold my plan. And there's going to be a day, and it's going to be a whole lot better than the Blackhawks celebration in Grant Park, where God will align all of his people for the great victory parade and the victory celebration. And he will allow us to participate when we are faithful to the calling. He will allow us to participate in the greatest victory celebration to ever take place. There's something great about being part of history. I was in Galena, Illinois this last week. And I was at a, a museum, and I was seeing uh, one of the exhibits in the museum was the famous people that have visited Galena. And one of the famous people to visit was one of our presidents, Theodore Roosevelt. And I don't have a lot of American history. I love American history because of my life. I don't have much of American lineage. Of course, my father's whole side is from the Middle East. And yet, in cleaning out my grandmother's house when she passed away a couple of years ago, I knew of the only thing I knew of any kind of pizzazz in my family history was my great-grandfather on my mom's side was the personal chauffeur of a governor here in Illinois, Governor Loudon, around the turn of the century. In cleaning out my grandmother's house, in the basement is a black-and-white photo that I never knew where the date was from. 
In the photo is my great-grandfather standing next to Governor Loudon of Illinois. They are meeting President Theodore Roosevelt. In that picture, my great-grandfather is being spoken to and shaking the hands of Theodore Roosevelt. I showed the picture. I've got it on my phone. I showed the picture to the curator of the, magazine, or the museum, and he said, I know when this happened. He says there's, only, there's less than 200 pictures of Theodore Roosevelt in all of circulation that we have. And you've got one of them that we didn't know about. And he says, I can tell you the date of that event because there's only one time that Governor Loudon met Theodore Roosevelt, and that was April 27, 1900, and you've got a picture to prove it. Let me tell you something. When we are faithful to God, God takes a picture of that, and he will announce it to the generations that are to come. I am victorious. And there were men and women who stood in victory with me. And let me tell you about them. And we learned about one today named Zerubbabel. And we are better to know him as a result of what he's done. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for sharing about your servant, your signet ring, your, your prized possession in Zerubbabel. Lord, I thank you that you declared to a man who was discouraged and brokenhearted by what he saw in the world of his day that you win. Because, Lord, we need that encouragement this morning. Lord, we see the armies of this world, the, the thrones and rulers of this world conspiring against you. And, Lord, it's easy from a human perspective to wonder, do they have a chance of winning? And yet we hear in our passage this morning, you win. You claim the victory. And you don't do so just in word, but you do so in action, which is seen throughout human history. So, Lord, in this moment, in this time of American history, Lord, we lament, we wonder, what will the future hold? And the future holds, Lord, what you tell us. You've won the victory. And we can rest in that this morning. Because no matter what sinful men try to do, Lord, you will bring it all under your throne on that great and glorious day. So, Lord, allow us to leave this place not with our heads held down, not with us walking out with loser limps, but as champions because of Christ. Let us go to our workplaces tomorrow with our heads held high that God has won the victory. And let us announce that victorious call to all who will receive him, to them he'll give the power to become the children of God. Let us do it in our schools. Let us do it in our neighborhoods. Let us do it when we announce it at VBS and in our pulpits. Let us announce it with every ounce of strength that we have. God wins, therefore we must submit in all spheres of life. It is then, Lord, that we're blessed. It is there that we find abundance. It is there that we find contentment and peace. Thank you, Lord, for your encouragement to your servants this morning. Now let us live in light of it as we leave this place so that you might be brought the glory, the honor, and the praise. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.